if it's alright with you, and even if it isn't, (laughs) I'm going to begin with prayer. Would you bow with me? Father, because we're talking today about prayer and looking at Jonah's prayer, I'm praying that you'll teach us to pray. Not just how to pray, but to pray. To come to you with every situation we face, every need, every praise, every concern, every request for brothers and sisters in the Lord and for others who need to know Jesus as Savior. Teach us to pray. And I ask it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Multitasking. It's been a big buzzword for quite a few years now. The ability to do two or more things at the same time. It was first used with the computer industry. Computer processes starting back as early as 1960. And then it began to be used of people and their overly busy lives and schedules and entered into our dictionaries at about 1998. Many of us joke about ourselves or about others that we know with statements like, I can't even chew gum and walk at the same time. Well, today in our Jonah series, we're going to look at a prophet of God who could only do one thing while he was inside this great fish, and that's pray. And since we're not in there with him, (laughs) and probably will never be in the exact same situation, I want us to consider how to pray and walk with God at the same time in 2015. And what I hope is going to happen is that we'll realize, maybe for the first time for some of us, or for the first time in a long time for others of us, that praying is a precious key to walking with God this year. So I want to share with you this morning four ways to pray and walk at the same time. The first of those is to recognize God's hand in things. What theologians call His sovereignty. So I want to start by multitasking myself this morning. I want to hit instant replay from last Sunday's message to set the scene for Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. So I'm reading now directly from last week's message. Let's reset the story, I said, especially if you were not here last week. Some of you weren't here last week. Jonah is a prophet of God to Israel. His ministry spanned the time between two other prophets, Elisha and Amos. He's called specifically by God to bring a message of doom to the people of Nineveh. Jonah decides he'll go his own way rather than God's and heads 2,000 miles in the other direction by boarding a ship bound for Tarshish. Once on board, he goes down into the lower deck of the ship and falls asleep. Meanwhile, God hurls a great storm on the Mediterranean Sea and these seasoned sailors are frightened, perhaps more than ever before in their careers. They cry out to their individual false gods, their idols, Then the captain wakes Jonah up and demands that he pray to his God, whoever that God is. Stop the replay. Moving on from that point, I think you know, I hope, if you were here last Sunday, or you can read it in chapter 1, that the sailors cast lots to see who it is that's responsible for this sea storm. And God sees to it that Jonah is the one marked out as the person responsible. 
And on his own request, the sailors throw Jonah overboard. As we head into today's text, Jonah is scooped up in the very large mouth of a very large sea creature that God appointed to rescue this wayward walker who now has become a desperate diver. Jonah had probably swallowed some salty seawater on his way down and now was inside this great fish where everything was dark and smelly, where strange noises were pounding in his ears, and where he could no doubt feel what I'm calling UFOs, unidentified floating objects, bumping into him as he lay in the belly of this great sea creature. The very creature God sent to keep him alive in the Mediterranean Sea. All of his senses were involved. But God was also involved, and Jonah knew that. Look at verse 3 here in chapter 2. He says, For thou hast cast me into the deep. See that? Thou hast cast me into the deep. Now, yes, physically, it was the sailors who picked him up and threw him overboard. But he recognizes that that action was actually the activity of God. God was in control of it. One of the most wonderful truths for people who are walking with God is the truth of the sovereignty of God. It's also a fear-producing truth for those who are walking their own way like Jonah had been. Let me define sovereignty for you. Sovereignty is the absolute authority God has over all of His creation. Absolute authority. David wrote in Psalm 46 verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. Well, that's all Jonah could do. He's inside this great fish. All he can do is be still. And in that stillness, he gave some deep thought to the control of God over his life at that moment. He should have thought about that days before when God called him to go to Nineveh. Instead, he went to Joppa and from there got on a ship going to Tarshish. So when he should have thought about it, now faced to fish flab with the truth that he is on a different course, he now has an appreciation for God sparing his life. He's all alone inside this fish, and he prays, and he prays hard. Think about this fact so beautifully illustrated in Jonah chapter 2. The fact that there is no wrong place to pray. So if you're in a restaurant, lots of people around, your food is brought to you by the waiter or waitress, that's a good place to pray. Say, God, thank you for our food. In Jesus' name, amen. There's no wrong place to pray. Why? Because part of the Bible's teaching about the sovereignty of God is that His control over His creation extends to everywhere because God is everywhere. His sovereignty means that He's the Creator. And I can give Him glory for the splendor of His handiwork. It means that He's the Redeemer. And I can gratefully receive and report Share His salvation. It means He's Master. Master of the universe. And I can joyfully say yes 
to His command to serve Him. I want to share with you you three more wonderful truths that relate to the sovereignty of God as illustrated in the life of Jonah at this point in time in Jonah chapter 2. First of all, God has the right to discipline His children. That's part of the sovereignty of God. The writer of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 5 quotes the book of Job, Job chapter 5 verse 17, and says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. God has the right to discipline. Some of you will remember, I know I do, as a youngster, getting in fights with either siblings or kids on the playground. Sometimes that person would twist your arm or bend your finger backwards. And you remember what they used to say? Say, uncle. Uncle. I don't know why they use that. But that's what they used to say. And if you would say uncle, they'd let go. Jonah was going to have to say, Yahweh. Lord, God, not uncle. And God would let go. God would send a great fish to spare his life. God has the right to discipline his children. Secondly, God knows what he's doing, he doesn't make mistakes. Jonah being cast overboard and Jonah being swallowed by this great sea creature, that was not a mistake on God's part. He had planned that. He had appointed that fish to be there at that moment in time. And God does not make mistakes even when it comes to what He allows or appoints in the way of circumstances in our lives either. And then thirdly and finally, God's timing is perfect. For Jonah, it was not a moment too soon that this fish came along. And it certainly wasn't a moment too late to save him from drowning in the sea. And in the perfect will of God, in the sovereign control of God, the timing of His discipline in our lives is also right on. A moment ago I quoted Psalm 46, verse 10. Here is Lisa Turkers' take on that powerful command. This is beautiful. She writes this, Be still, my runaway heart. Be still, my desire to fix things. Be still, my anxious thoughts. Be still and know without a doubt God is. God is the answer. God is the solution. God is the desire met. God is what I'm looking for. God is what I need. God is God. Be still and know. And here's King David's take on God's sovereignty in a wonderful passage that you would do well to read often. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 to 13. David writes, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that's in the heavens and the earth is Thine. Thine is the dominion, O Lord, and Thou dost exalt Thyself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from Thee, and Thou dost rule over all. And in Thy hand is power and might, and it lies in Thy hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, our God, we thank Thee and praise Thy glorious name. 
It's a beautiful statement of God's sovereignty. All that God wants, and for all the right reasons, like His glory and our good, is for us to submit to His loving control. So that's the second thing that's going to aid us in praying and walking at the same time, is when we respond to Him in submission. Jonah says in verse 2 of our text, I called out of my distress. I cried for help. He knew that God sent the storm because of his sin. He also knew that God was working him over with a purpose. And yet delivering him with compassion. So while he clearly felt in verse 4, I have been expelled from thy sight, he could also say, I will look again toward thy holy temple. The temple in those days was a real place, but it was also a symbol for Jews and proselytes to the Jewish faith of a place of worship and service and a place of prayer. Jonah felt confident that he could pray and God would hear. He submitted to the discipline of the Lord and claimed God's sovereign right to do it. But he also claimed God's compassionate heart to hear Him pray, and he submitted to that willingly. He says again in verse 2, He answered me, and thou didst hear my voice. He writes after the incident. He's not writing down there while he's in the fish. The pen wouldn't work. He's writing afterward, but he's writing about God and he's writing to God. Prayer, if it is sincere and from a heart of love for the Lord, is a powerful part of our walk with God. It's a demonstration of our dependence on Him. This whole incident that Jonah went through could have been avoided if he had answered God's call when God said, go to Nineveh. If he would have submitted to that call and gone, none of this would have had to take place, but that isn't how it happened. But now, through all of this, there's a stirring in his heart, and there are prayers on his lips. In his mobile prayer room, he's calling out to God. He's come to his senses. He realizes, I need to talk to God. It would have been good if he'd have done that before when the sailors said to him, call on your God. But he didn't. He's no longer sleeping in the lower deck of the ship. He's wide awake in the belly of a fish. And he knows it's only God who put him there to preserve him. He's grateful for still being alive. I'm a huge fan of Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher from a hundred years ago. I have a lot of his books. I have his personal autobiography. I love to read Spurgeon. After some really difficult circumstances in his life and ministry, he wrote this in one of his sermons. I have learned to kiss the hand that throws me against the rock of ages. Isn't that a beautiful expression? I've learned to kiss the hand that throws me against the rock of ages. The person who says, I don't need God, or who says, who needs prayer, is the person who's destined for trouble on top of trouble and is going to end up in despair and ruin. 
And while most Christians would never say those words out loud, who needs God or who needs prayer, we often act like practical atheists because we don't pray. We don't come to God when we could. Not praying, not talking to Him, in some cases not even walking with Him, but walking our own way, doing our own thing, as if we can't pray and walk at the same time. Some of us multitask in many other areas of life, but not when it comes to prayer. And I'm not sure why that is. But here's something that I thought of. This is brilliant. You're going to really take well to this. I'm just kidding, of course, about the brilliance of it. But this thought struck me. God does not force us to pray. He could. Think about that. He could push us somehow down on our knees, out in public or in a private place like our bedroom at home. He could push us down on our knees. He could move our jaws and make us say those words and then say, there, I got them to pray to me. But that's not how God works. It's a choice we make to pray and walk with God. And many of God's people have learned to pray as they walk with God. And they've learned, as we sang earlier, there's nothing quite like that sweet hour of prayer that calls us from a world of care. To reject that and go it alone without God and to go without talking to God while we are invited to walk with Him is actually to invite to ourselves a world of trouble. It's going to happen. And that's not because God is vindictive or that His anger is out of control. It's because He loves us. And He wants the very best for us. He wants us to experience personally the joy of walking in an intimate fellowship with Him. There's nothing like being able to sing from our hearts. And I'm going to sing it for you right now. And He walks with me, and He talks with me, and He tells me I am His own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. It's possible to know that joy. It really is. Jonah could have known it. And even after all the trouble he's been through, he could know that joy. How? By submitting to God's perfect will for his life. Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, founder of Dallas Seminary, in his Systematic Theology, Volume 1, writes, There is perfect peace and highest destiny for those who, knowing the will of God, are subject to it. But he adds, There is distress and anguish awaiting those who, knowing the will of God, disregard it. So that's the choice, isn't it? One or the other. No in-between. It's one or the other. R.T. Kendall, in his commentary on the book of Jonah, says that while Jonah is in that great fish, it's not a happy place to live, but it's a good place to learn. And Jonah's learning. I'm sure he would agree with Mr. Chafer and Mr. Kendall. 
Notice the record of his trouble with with me. Verse 3, he says, Thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. I translate that as, I couldn't swim anymore against the current, and the undertow was pulling me down. He goes on to say, Thy breakers and billows passed over me. Jonah is saying, in effect, I was underwater and I couldn't breathe. Verse 5, water encompassed me to the point of death. Translation, I knew I was going to die. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Verse 6, I descended to the roots of the mountains. That's Jonah, in effect, saying, I felt trapped, tangled up in seaweed, sinking to the bottom. Did you know there are mountains in the oceans? Down in the ocean, some of them as big as mountains around here in Cache Valley. He's saying, I'm, I'm headed down there, right to the very bottom of those mountains. And then God saves. Jonah calls this bottom of the sea experience in verse 2, Sheol. And here in verse 6, he calls it the pit. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the place of the dead. Jonah doesn't mean, by the way, there that he actually died and was resurrected. Some expositors believe that. I don't. I don't think he needed to have died in order to be uh, compared to Jesus' experience of being three days in the tomb. But he certainly came close. He saw this experience as what we in English call the pits. (laughs) This is about as bad as it gets. Physically and for a time spiritually, he was as far from walking with God as he could get due to his rebellion. But now God is extending mercy in saving his life and giving him another chance. So that brings us to the third way we can pray and walk at the same time, and that is by rejoicing in God's mercy, finding complete satisfaction in Him. I love this story by Leonard Sweet about one tribe of Native Americans. They had a unique practice for training young braves, he writes. On the night of a boy's 13th birthday, he was placed in a dense forest to spend the entire night alone. Until then, he'd never been away from home or from the tribe. But on this night, he was blindfolded and taken miles away. When he took off the blindfold, he was in the middle of a thick woods by himself all night long. Every time a twig snapped, he could imagine a wild animal ready to pounce. Every time an animal howled, he imagined a wolf prepared to attack. Every time the wind blew, he wondered what more sinister sound it was covering. It had to be a terrifying night for many of those boys. But after what seemed like an eternity, Leonard writes, the first rays of sunlight entered the interior of the forest. Looking around, the boy saw flowers, trees, the outline of the path that brought him to that woods. And then, to his utter amazement, he beheld the figure of a man standing just a few feet away, armed with a bow and arrow. It was the boy's father. He'd been there all night. Jonah realized, and we can realize, God is always there. Amen? He's always there. 
God was there when He called Jonah from Galilee to go to Nineveh. And Jonah said no. God was there when Jonah headed to Joppa to catch that ship to go 2,000 miles in the other direction. God was there when Jonah was in the stateroom of the ship asleep while the sailors were trying to deal with this horrible storm. God was there when He hurled that storm on the sea. God was there guiding the casting of lots so that Jonah was detected as the instigator of all the troubles they faced. God was there the moment Jonah face-planted in the water. And God was there when that fish swallowed him whole. God didn't have to be there. But at the same time, God is everywhere, right? That's what the Bible teaches. And His mercy caused Him to never leave Jonah's side. I want you to know this morning, without any doubt, and I can say this with absolute confidence, God will always be there for you and me. Why would any of us, seriously, choose to put distance between ourselves and God? doesn't make any sense. And yet we all too often do it, don't we? Let's be honest. We do. We put distance between us and God by our sin. We choose to sin and put that distance between ourselves and a holy God. But He's always there. He doesn't back away. We're the ones who move, not God. David exclaims in Psalm 86, verse 15, Thou, O Lord, art a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Many of us often use that expression, and it's a good one. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. But I want you to know this morning that that cannot be just some uh, mantra that we use in order to gain some false comfort. It is, however, a message that the Bible reveals that gives us firm confidence. Jonah says in verse 7, While I was fainting away, the word fainting there has the idea of passing out. He may have passed out more than once, perhaps. He says, While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. But then he realizes something even more important. The Lord remembered him. So he says in verse 9, at the end of the verse, salvation or deliverance is from the Lord. Many of God's people can testify to the satisfaction and joy that comes from this close, special walk with God, guided by prayer. Prayer and that walk go hand in hand, step by step. The Apostle Paul, who knew how to pray powerfully, says this about his own prayer life in Philippians 1 verse 4, always offering prayer with joy. Joy. And then he tells the Ephesian Christians and tells us by application in Ephesians 6 verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. I think it can be safely said that prayer is the greatest 
untapped power available to God's people that the world has ever known. If I am grateful for God's mercy, the fact that He doesn't give me or Jonah what we really deserve, then I can experience that walk with God and I can talk with God any time of the day or night for any reason. And I can pray to Him for any other person as well as myself who needs prayer. And I can praise Him in prayer for any and every blessing that His mercy and grace send my way. One way that I can honor Him for His mercy and grace is then to commit to serve Him when and where and how He sees fit. That's the fourth way that we combine prayer and a walk with God. And that is by renewing a commitment to Him, to serve Him. Jonah now becomes, at the end of his prayer, an an identified flying object. This great fish spits him out of his mouth onto the shore. Many of our texts use the word vomited. And uh, the actual meaning of the Hebrew word is projectile vomiting. Some of us have been around, uh, particularly little children, who get very sick, and uh, it's not a fun thing to be in front of them when that projectile explodes on us. That's not fun. Not fun for them either. But that's the word used here. He gets shot out of this great fish's mouth. Onto the shore. Can you imagine standing off the shore somewhere and seeing that? That would have been quite the scene. Once out on land, after some coughing and spitting up and breathing deeply and getting his strength back and getting his legs under him, Jonah's going to receive a repeat of the original command go to Nineveh. Will he accept the call this time? Well, notice verse 9 what he did say. That which I have vowed, I will pay. He must be referring to a vow that he made either while he was sinking deeper and deeper into the seaweed, or a vow that he made while he was in the stomach juices of that great fish. Perhaps he said to God in one of those lucid moments, God, if you'll spare my life, either from drowning or from being inside this fish, if you'll spare my life, I'll go. I'll do what you said. And God took him at his word. I want you to know this morning, vows, promises, are very important to God. Jesus said while he was on earth, don't even make a vow unless you plan to keep it. It's important to God. He wants to take us at our word. And we ought to be serious about our word to God. God took Jonah at his word. As we'll see in a future message, he gives him another chance. One of the remarkable things about Jonah's prayer here in chapter 2 is that it is full of Scripture. At least seven times in this prayer, in just ten verses, he quotes fully or partially from the Psalms. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Psalm 5-7 As for me, by thy abundant loving kindness, I will enter thy house 
At thy holy temple I will bow in reverence for thee. Jonah talked about, I'll go to the temple, I'll look to the temple. Psalm 120, verse 1, In my trouble I cried to the Lord and He answered me. Jonah said the same thing. I cried to the Lord and He answered me. And the last but not least, Psalm 3, verse 8, Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what he says at the end of verse 9, isn't it? Word for word, salvation belongs to the Lord. What's the point of these quotations, Bill? Just this. Jonah knew the Old Testament, especially the Psalms of David, well. He didn't have a scroll inside that fish. It would have been all soggy wet anyway. The ink would have, fa- would have run. He was quoting from memory. He knew his Bible well. And my point for today is that walking with God and praying with power are also to be accompanied with a knowledge of the Word of God. Not multitasking, multi-memorizing. Committing God's Word to study and to memory. And then praying Scripture. Praying the promises of God. Claiming those promises in prayer. Our service can then include sharing what we've learned or memorized or studied with someone who needs a promise from God, a word from the Lord. Our scripture reading this morning from Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is a case in point. If I study that text and especially memorize it, or I'm able to turn right to it because I'm comfortable with my Bible, then I can have the peace of God that passes all understanding and I can know that it will guard or protect my heart and mind through Christ Jesus so I can pray and not worry. But even more than that, I can be of service to the Lord and to someone else by sharing that truth with them when they need it most. I can tell them, here's a promise from God. If you'll pray out of a heart committed to Him, then the peace of God will guard your heart and mind and you won't have to worry. Someone wrote, and I love this quotation, self-righteous people pray self-focused prayers. Sinners in awe of God's power pray prayers that exalt His grace. I want to ask us this morning, are we in awe of God's grace and His mercy? Are we in awe of those awesome character qualities of this sovereign God? If we are, then we will want to become proficient at praying and walking with God at the same time. And here's what it will look like. We will recognize His sovereign control We'll respond to Him submissively, willingly. We'll rejoice in and share the message of His grace and mercy with others because we're satisfied that He's so gracious and merciful to us. And we'll constantly renew our commitment to obey Him and serve Him wherever and to whatever He calls. If you'd like to know some ways you can serve right here in this local church. Please see some of our leaders.
We'd be happy to help you understand and point out to you ways that you can be involved in serving and how God's plan and purpose for your lives can be known. Questions are often a good way to make application. Uh, Maybe you would have some questions for Jonah if he were here this morning. I know I would. I'd like to ask him, why didn't you go the first time when God sent you? I'd like to ask him, why didn't you pray when all those unbelieving sailors were praying to their false gods? Why didn't you pray? Why didn't you get this issue of sin settled right there? And God could have stopped that storm and could have gotten you safely to shore on board a ship instead of inside a fish. Why didn't you? Or what exactly, Jonah, was your vow to God? What exactly was it that you said you would pay? But since we've been talking about praying and walking, here are some questions about prayer for you and me to answer. Questions that come from an old gospel songwriter. Mosey Lister wrote back in 1956 these questions about prayer. How long has it been since you talked with the Lord and told Him your heart's hidden secrets? How long since you prayed? How long since you stayed on your knees till the light shone through? How long has it been since your mind felt at ease? How long since your heart knew no burden? How long has it been since you knelt by your bed and prayed to the Lord up in heaven? How long since you knew that He'd answer you and would keep you the long night through? How long has it been since you woke with the dawn and felt like the day's worth the living? Can you call Him your friend? Aren't you glad this morning? I'm going to stop right there and just say, I hope, like me, you're glad that He calls us His friend. John chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus said to His disciples, I have called you friends. For God in the flesh to say, Bill, you're my friend. That's, that's unbelievable. But that's what He says. The final question from Mosey Lister is, how long has it been since you knew that He cared for you? Good questions. We're going to close our service this morning with a wonderful old hymn, I Must Tell Jesus. And then after we sing this song, I want us to do something very practical based on what we've learned this morning about prayer. I want us to pray. No, not me praying for you. I want us to do what we haven't done in a long time in our church. I'd like us to get into some small groups of three or four or five or six and pray for each other. If you're not comfortable praying uh, in front of other people, that's okay. We're not forcing you. Just like God doesn't force us to get down on our knees and pray. But I invite you to share something from your heart that those in that group can pray for you about if you feel comfortable doing that. And if you're comfortable with it, I'd love to have you pray. So your little group, we can meet all around the auditorium or out in the kitchen if you like, whatever. But we'll take some time to pray together and just share with each other what's on our hearts and talk to God. Because it is possible to talk to God and walk with God at the same time.
Would you stand as we sing this closing song? I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, He kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for His own. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me, Jesus alone. I must tell Jesus all of my troubles. He is a kind, compassionate friend. If I but ask Him, He will deliver Make of my troubles quickly an end. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me, Jesus alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me, Jesus alone. Jesus can help me, Jesus alone.